0: You can flip to Romans 3 now, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 20 this week, and then we'll finish it. But please, please, please know that um, in no way is it... I could go back and preach this stuff all over again, and, and we can emphasize different things. So it's imperative to try to hang on to, as you read, you can even read ahead for the next week, just try to hang on to the flow of thought, because it's hard to especially Paul, <laughs> he, he will write a the longest Greek sentence in history. And so he just kind of flows. It just flows for him. He was obviously a gifted man. So it flows, but you know, I'm going to stop at verse 20, but you can't really stop. So think of all of these as uh, things that belong together, I guess. Um, so just know that ahead of time. So covenant responsibility, that's going to be our Um, message today covenant responsibility let's look at Romans 3 1 through 20 I'll read it and then we'll pray Romans 3 verse 1 what advantage then does the Jew have or what profit is there in circumcision much in every way chiefly because the oracles of God were entrusted to them note that word entrusted what if some did not believe would their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God God forbid or may it never be uh, one of Paul's strongest phrases he uses several times. Uh, no way, dude, if you're a California guy, I guess. I don't, that's, his, that's what he's saying. No way. God forbid. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may prevail in your judging. That's Psalm 51, 4. verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous in taking vengeance? I am speaking in human terms. God forbid. There it is again. (laughs) That's okay. For then, how could God judge the world? (laughs) If through my lie the truth of God has abounded more to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Why not rather say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously accused, and as some claim that we say. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged, note this, that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's Psalm 14, 1 and Psalm 53. He's going to refer to those passages here. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Verse 13, their throats are an open grave. What a visual. (laughs) With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of vipers is under their lips. That's Psalm 5, 9 and Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, that's Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood, Proverbs 1, 16, and Isaiah 59, 7. Destruction and misery are in their paths, Isaiah 59, 7 again. And they do not know the way of peace, that's Isaiah 59, 8. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Psalm 36, 1 the most dense place Paul ever refer, uh, gives reference to Old Testament scripture verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and all the world may become accountable to god therefore by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin all right let's pray uh, our father in god we have gathered today to confess to you our sins And confess our commitment to your covenant. We ask and pray for circumcised hearts that want what you want and pursue what you pursue. We are thankful for the justice and mercy we get as a gift in the gospel. And we ask for your justice to prevail on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Now that seems like a very odd section of scripture. You might read it and, and think, what is he talking about? So we'll obviously work ourselves through. But I want to remind you of some things from Romans already because it's going to help anchor us in what he's getting at here for uh, how how to work through this passage. The first thing is this. Remember in Romans 1, Paul begins his treatise by explaining the King Jesus gospel. Christ is David's son and he's David's Lord. That's Psalm 110 verse 1. And by virtue of his death and resurrection, he is now seated um, as Israel's Lord, the world's rightful king. So that's, that's how he starts the whole book of Romans off with. Second, Paul has no reason, he says, to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the very power of God to save everyone who believes it. And that everyone, of course, well, he means everyone. The old joke, you know, in Greek, it just means everyone. <laughs> That's what it means. Everyone who believes it. To prove his case, the apostle, he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, which is the great verse, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith, which we'll come back to because there's, it ties into this section. So already Paul is giving a covenantal corrective, which we'll expand on later. And that sets the tone for the rest of the book. Third, in the gospel message, the good news, God's covenant justice, which is what we call the righteousness of God, the and theiu, when, when you hear the phrase the righteousness of God, you th- should think the covenant justice of God, that is revealed, but so is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is also revealed. When Christ came, the cross was, of course, the most pivotal moment for God's justice, for God's mercy, for God's grace, God's love. We look at the cross and we see all of that descending, de- descending on him. And because of that, this new working paradigm for understanding the world is now made manifest. It's almost like when you look at the cross, you should think, ah, okay, so that's where everything was headed, and that's where everything's going. Because the cross sets in the middle of history, and it was the moment where God's future glory is brought into the present. Why? Because Jesus is raised from the dead. And, of course, we all know dead messiahs or failed messiahs, which is why Jesus is alive. Alas, here we are. So in Christ, the wrath of God is revealed, in a sense, in a new way. We get to see how God feels about sin with the final blood atonement of Christ. All that, the gory stuff in the Old Testament about bulls and goats and so on, uh, that all went, that was pointing to something. And when we see that something uh, being the cross, we get to say, Ha, okay, that's how God feels about sin. Fine, good. So part of this new way of understanding is found in God giving sinners what they want, which is the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. That's Romans 1. So God has always made himself known. He said, Paul says he made, God's made himself known plainly in creation. Um, the other night, Mary got home and opened the door, and, and I was just sitting on the couch reading, and, and she said, do you hear that? And man, the crickets and the cicadas and all the other bugs that Eli knows about that I don't. Fantastic symphony going on outside. (laughs) Creation's crying out. You hear the birds singing. Some like blue jays are more obnoxious than others, but God's creation sings out to him and it's a beautiful thing. And we can see God's order in the universe and we should glorify him because of it. But what happens when you don't wanna do that? Well, you suppress the truth, right? He's always made himself known, which means that knowledge of God is not the problem. Sin is the problem. It's an ethical issue, not a knowledge issue. So Paul says in chapter 1, God gave them up. He says, have it your way then. You want to debase your mind over and over and pursue this humanistic lust of autonomy? Fine, have it your way. Fourth, in chapter 2, we saw that Paul rules out the moralists, particularly the, the Jewish moralists, uh, you can't criticize a sin while doing the sin and then call it righteousness. That's his argument. Uh, all this does is store up the wrath of God for the final day of judgment. And the reason for this is, is straightforward. God shows no partiality. God does not play favorites. Uh, he's far too holy for such trivialities. He's not in the business of, well, that guy's a nice guy, so I'm going to be a little lenient on him. No, God's justice is straightforward. It cuts a clean cut. There is no partiality with God. Fifth, so far in Romans, Paul has also made it clear that covenantal allegiance goes deeper than mere possession of sound doctrine. Gentiles, he argues, don't by nature possess the things that that the Jews had, and yet they can fulfill the law because the Holy Spirit is within them, these Gentile Christians. So don't... In other words don't don't boast as in, in your you know don't boast that your doctrinal statement is stacked we have it all we combat nestorianism we combat all the arianism all the heresies we we look at our doctrinal statement it's it's fantastic isn't this great and then that's it paul condemns that mindset do you serve that's the issue do you love To anticipate Romans 13, that is how you fulfill the law of God. Love is the fulfillment of the law of God. It's not enough to have a robust doctrinal statement on your website, though I like to think we do. (laughs) Do you serve? Do you love? Do you pour yourself out in service to other people? That's the issue. And then six, finally, what we've covered so far. Heart circumcision is what marks one out as a true Jew. That's what we looked at last week. It's the spirit who regenerates the heart, who cuts the heart, who who yanks out the heart of stone in Ezekiel's language and puts in a heart of flesh in order to make one a true covenant member. You can't be a covenant member um, in in this new understanding without a circumcised heart. Um, Well, you, you actually can be, but you're not a legitimate heir, if you will. So that's what we've covered so far, and our text is going to expand on that point, because Paul is going to emphasize covenantal responsibility for the people of God. All of you confess Christ, you've been baptized into his covenant, you now have a responsibility. And he's going to explain how that expresses itself too. You can't approach the covenant, he says, by claiming circumcision alone, talking to the Jews. You can only approach the covenant by grace through faith. The just shall live by faith. They are chosen by God, which means you can't somehow earn it. That's part of the issue. So that, and that's not even an option, by the way. So Paul seems to be this rather desultory writer at times. He's random. It's, it's, it seems as though his, his logic consists of a whole bunch of rabbit trails when you're reading him. Uh, random ideas here and there but you should know that's not at all how he functions. The thrust of the argument here rests on this major theme, and here's this major theme. God in Christ has remained faithful to Israel despite their unkempt and unfaithful famil- fulfillment of their calling, and thus God's plan to redeem the world is still on track. That, you, you read a passage like this, and you think, what in the world is he getting at? That's what he's getting at. God in Christ has remained faithful to Israel despite their unkempt and unfaithful fulfillment of their calling, and thus God's plan to redeem the world is still on track. So Paul's main problem here in Romans 3 is the fact that the Jews of his day had co-opted the covenant, using it and abusing it as a manner, uh, rather as an advantage over other men instead of stewardship under God for the world. That's the main issue. When you take the name of the covenant and you try to oppress others with it, look how great we are, these uncircumcised Gentiles. They are a subhuman. We are far more superior. They are inferior. When you take the covenant and malign it like that, by the way, we do this in the church today when we um, treat people as less than human. Because their, their life apparently doesn't matter. And we've said it before, there's no reason you can't say black lives matter. You can affirm that a black life matters because a black life is made in the image of God. And I'm fine, you don't have to get on the socialist train as far as the organization is concerned. We, we know that, that's pretty clear. There's some really bad ideas. But that doesn't somehow mean you can't affirm that someone is made in the image of God, uh, because if they're a human being, they're made in the image of God. From conception all the way through. So you can't take the covenant and malign it like that. As we have emphasized, the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk or Paul here doesn't say the just shall be saved by faith, though God does save by faith and only faith. We know that from Ephesians 2. If the covenant is meant to be outward and extended towards the world, and it is, by the way, then it follows that we must see to it that the world has changed. And this is where um, modern-day pietists and escapists, they miss the boat here. The covenant is meant to be expressed outward. We're, we're to take our inward membership of it and express it outward. And, and, and the whole point is to get others in the covenant, not just keep it to ourselves. And that's where the modern church has, has gone wrong. So if the covenant is inward-focused, opting for a pursuit of justice and righteousness solely in terms of personal salvation, then we have, frankly, forsaken our responsibility. We might as well pack up and go home. And thus, we should probably also pity ourselves. We are not the point of the covenant. We are the means of the covenant. We are not the point of it. God, This whole idea, Jesus died for me, yes, that is true. But that's not the end of the Gospel. That's not the only point of the Gospel. Jesus died for you, yes, but now you are in Him, and then you have a responsibility. So that's what Paul gets at. Let's look at our text. If Paul's point is true, okay, let me say this first, and the inherited privileges of the Jewish people the privileges of, of of sound doctrine, monotheism, Torah, they have the law, they were chosen by God, etc. If all those things are are true, well, they essentially have become worthless because of this self-implosion of sorts. They have turned the covenant upside down, they had forsaken their responsibility. And and if all that's true, then one might want to know if the whole point of it all, this whole thing has just been one giant charade. And This is the difficulty for me when I look at Scripture, and we have people who just don't think the Old Testament has any meaning. You know, it's like God chose Abraham. Well, that didn't work out. I guess I'll just send Jesus, as if that solves any of the tension. (laughs) Paul's entire the next chapter is going to go into the same thing with Abraham. There's a story and there's a connection. Don't miss the connection. So if God, in other words, if God had chosen Israel, given them these great gifts, the gift of the law of God, the justice of God, sound doctrine, chosen them out of all the peoples in the world. If he had given them those things and Israel then failed in their rejection of the Messiah, well, then what does that say about God? How could God be faithful to his covenant promise and let this happen? So in verse 1, Paul has all these questions. He has this diatribe with his interlocutor, his imaginary person that he's, he's dialoguing with. And he, he says, Well, what is the advantage of Jewishness? What's the advantage then if we're all just a bunch of sinners like the Gentiles? Is there even an advantage? If God calls the Jews from among the uncircumcised pagans of the world, remember that was Abraham, by the way. <laughs> I always I like to mess with people's theology. Did you know Abraham wasn't Jewish at one point? (laughs) He was a pagan, which begs the question, what does it mean to be Jewish? That's Paul's point. It means to be a true member of the covenant. So he chose Abram from among these uncircumcised pagans and apparently gave him the covenant sign. You know, read Genesis 15, 17 and on. Uh, He gave the covenant sign of circumcision. Then what's the point of it all then? What's the point of being Jewish? Is there any advantage whatsoever with being in covenant with God or in this manner? Well, yes, Paul says in verse 2, there is. The primary reason was because God gave his oracles to them. Okay, think about Christian theology. We believe in God who reveals himself. Our entire epistemology, how we know things, rests on the fact that God spoke. God speaks. Um, we don't just have a book that fell out of the sky without a context. We have a book that includes the history of the world where God has spoken and shown himself glorious over and over and over and over again. But the Israelites, they were given these oracles. God gave them his law, the pattern for righteousness with an eye of, of instructing the nations with this teaching. Just look at Deuteronomy four, the whole point is there. If you're gonna obey me and do this, the nations are gonna look at you and say, wow, what a great God they have. He's so just and so righteous. Humans flourish under this law. So this is no small point here. Note the word entrusted. Being entrusted with something means that the something is not for you, it's for the person to whom it belongs, right? If I give you an envelope, or you know, uh, an envelope maybe full of money, and uh, you know, let's get crazy and call it $500, and I entrust you with it, and you're supposed to deliver that to someone, the envelope's not for you, and you'd be a fool to think it was. The arrangement's clear, I'm entrusting you, I'm giving it to you for someone else. So Israel, in that sense, was the covenant people of God for the world. Their job was to be entrusted Um, with this message. They were to be kings and priests for the world. They were to take Canaan and make it this new Eden of God. They were the messengers of God. But the message wasn't only for them. The message was for the world. But there's a problem here in verse 3. What if some didn't believe? That is, they didn't carry out the commission because they were unfaithful. The word there, depending on your translation, it's not so much unbelief as in they didn't have faith in God at all. Rather, they didn't trust God and thus they weren't obedient. Does their untrustworthiness, does their unfaithfulness cancel out God's faithfulness? Is there somehow this view of man where we get to control the sovereign hand of God? Is that what's going on? No, not at all. God's covenant always, always, always envisaged Israel being a faithful light to the world. But just because he put the plan together like this and it didn't work because they failed, doesn't mean the plan is somehow wrong and that God is somehow unfaithful, okay? Uh, if I entrust my child to take a, an envelope to the mailbox and some, you know, the wind picks up and, and somehow the transaction fell apart, it's not my fault as the one giving the, the, t- the task, is giving the job. Maybe it could have been secured better. I don't know. <laughs> the analogy breaks down a little bit. But you get the point. And so verse 4, he says, God forbid. What a terrible thought to think such things. He's repulsed at the idea that somehow God is to blame for Israel's failure. God will continue his plan through a faithful Israelite who will carry out the commission. And who is the faithful Israelite who carried out the commission? The Lord Jesus Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here in verse 4, Paul quotes Psalm 51 verse 4. And that's the great prayer of repentance written by David after his adultery with Bathsheba. And the point is, God's words are always true, even if man's words always prove false. Doesn't The falsity of, of, of man's word doesn't somehow negate God's word. Okay think of it in terms of think of it in terms of this, you know, slight nuisance of statism we have going on. <laughs> Only a little slight. Um, does that somehow negate God's word? Do, do we somehow say, "Well, you know? Um, ideally, yes, this is what the civil magistrate would do, but, you know, we're not there, things are bad, so we probably shouldn't even worry about it. No, we, we want God's words to cut through all the truth and all the lies, and because that's how it is. God always judges rightly. Even when a penitent man acknowledges his sin, he's always true. Even when an impenitent man who doesn't confess his sins, guess what? God's word is still true. Man's word does not negate God's word. That's right, Logan. (laughs) Someone might argue, he says in verse 5, that our unrighteousness apparently demonstrates and even gives reason for God's righteousness to prevail, right? I mean, if I sin and God gives grace, I might as well sin some more, right? Why not? He says that later in Romans 2. You know, it seems as though there's this problem with God. If God's on trial, because he didn't hold up his end of the bargain, how could he possibly be the judge as well? How can God judge the case fairly, in other words? He says in verse 6, God forbid. Again, no way. God isn't in the dock with Israel. He's the faithful judge over the entire created world. Don't reduce him down to your vain imaginations. God's word is clear. There are sanctions for disobedience, which means that if God refuses to judge Israel, he has no grounds to judge the rest of the world either. Judgment, like grace, is for the Jew first, then the Greek. Listen, if you want the priority of grace, then you better be ready for the priority of judgment that comes along right with it. Don't be the first in line to the grace line if you're not going to also attempt to be first in line to the repentance line. Israel's failure then serves to prove that God is upright, God is righteous. Either he's the person who judges them, and he's always just, or he's the person who delivers them, and he is always good. So God's faithful to all of his words, not just the blessings for obedience. In other words, you can't piecemeal the covenant oh, I love the cross, I love, I love the grace of God. Do you love the repentance? Paul continues in verse 7, if the logic of sin, sin so that God will act, follows, well, why would God still judge him as a sinner? Notice he says in verse 7, I. He says I here, which is something he's going to do later in Romans 9 through 11. The, Paul starts, he's changing the argument. He's now identifying himself as Israel. He's not trying to be condescending here but he's identifying with his kinsmen according to the flesh. And the point is this, if Israel's falsehood means that God's truth shines more brightly, why would God have a problem with that? God's name was blasphemed among the nations, but apparently that enhances his glory. Why is there a problem? I mean, think about it in your, in your own life. You, you hit rock bottom, that's where the grace of God goes. Well, let's try to see if we can alter the rock bottom a little bit more. Maybe I can go deeper. No, that's an absurd way of thinking. Apparently, some were arguing in verse 8 that evil ought to be permitted because it forces God's hand to do good, which is condemnation. That's not how ethics works. It's not how the holiness of God's work. You can't say, well, when I do bad, I can just go to God and he'll forgive me and his grace shines and covers it all and here we go. That's not, that's not a paradigm. In verses 9 through 17, we already pointed those out. Paul quotes from several passages uh, from Psalms and Isaiah. He proves his point that all are under sin, both Jews and Gentiles. All are under sin. There's no boast for the Jew, for they too have sinned. They too have broken the covenant. They have essentially become uncircumcised Gentiles. So the irony here is this. <laughs> Paul's basically saying, yes, you have the law of God, and that's a great thing. It's so awesome. That's wonderful. But guess what? You've broken it. You've broken it too. Those entrusted with the Torah have broken the Torah. Something else is needed, which is what we'll talk about next week. And then finally, look at verses 19 and 20. And I want to read this just so you can catch where the argument's headed. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and all the world may become accountable to God. Therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul ends this part of his argument by saying that Jews, like the Gentiles, have zero boast. The law can't be used as a life preserver when you've broken the life preserver. The stopping of the mouth, by the way, is fitting because this whole scene is a law court scenario, okay? Imagine anyone like law shows, lawyer shows, imagine these, uh, some people don't, you in the back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But imagine this is Paul in court and he has just put the Jews and the Gentiles together in the dock, they are condemned, right? <laughs> and God's on his throne, he's the judge. This is the situation. The stopping of the mouth, by the way, he references here. Uh, it was a normal sign when you were in court, you would put your hand over your mouth. When you were done testifying, you would, you would just do this. It means you had, no more, you had no more to say in your defense. You're in court, you've said your piece, You just put your hand over your mouth and it was a symbol that you were done. Well, if an obviously guilty defendant kept on speaking in court, you know, the guy that refuses to drop the shovel, (laughs) just keep digging that hole, (laughs) that that guy, the court might order that his mouth be stopped. That might be a thing. The case has been heard. The defendants have been heard ad nauseum. (laughs) There's no more to speak of. They're all in the dock waiting for the verdict. They have all been silenced, and all of mankind stands before God. And the point of verse 20 is that no flesh can be declared right by the judge by virtue of doing certain works of the law. None of us ought to be motivated by God's grace to such a degree where we say, well, I do good things. I'm a good person. The gospel is always reduced down to that. Ask... Ask your average church goer. Ligonier put out a theology study. They do it every, I think it's every year, or every other year, one of those. And, and they survey Christians in the Protestant churches and they ask the question, you know, how do you know you're going to heaven? Or how do you know you're a saved person? I'm a good person. You'd be surprised at how many people say that. It's shocking. But alas, that's what people think. So the point of verse 20 is the law cuts both ways it doesn't it doesn't just give blessing for obedience it gives curses for disobedience and when it is disobeyed and by default that's all mankind right judgment awaits so torah brings knowledge of sin those under the law that's shorthand for jews but applicable to all men are consigned to death no one earns that you can't earn the grace of god that's not even a category so the main issue is not that the law was bad and boy, those Jewish people, I can't believe it. They, they shouldn't have tried to follow it. Why would they do that? And as a side note, this may serve as a corrective for you and your thinking, but I would argue up and down all day that I don't believe that the Jews in the Old Testament were trying to obey the law in order to be saved. There are people who teach that. That's not the case. They weren't trying to be obedient to the law in order to be saved. They were redeemed from slavery in, 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 in his, uh, Egypt, brought through the waters of baptism, Paul says, in the, in the crossing of the sea, and they were given his law. As a redeemed people now, you must live like this. That's the Old Testament paradigm. Don't look at the Old Testament and think, boy, those guys were always just trying to earn their salvation and they couldn't do it. That's not really true. But that's for another time. So it's not that they didn't have God's approval already and they tried to earn it. The issue is taking the legitimate covenant status from an appeal to the law, but not the grace of God. Oh, I have the law. I'm in the covenant. No, 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 no. You need to appeal to the grace of God. Don't ignore the fact that the law actually condemns you. So think of it this way. A Jew might say, Paul, look, man, like I look to the law and it tells me absolutely that I'm clearly different than a Gentile. You know what Paul will say? (laughs) Actually, nice try. You're looking to the law. By the way, that's a good thing. But did you realize you broke it and now you were just like a Gentile? You want your pride to be cut down real quick? Actually read the whole Bible? Talk about shutting mouths. (laughs) How do we apply this? At the core of covenant responsibility is our need to trust the Word of God and all of the Word of God. There is no possible way to be faithful to God if we ignore the hard parts of the Bible. You can't shave off the rough parts of the Bible with the sandpaper of human autonomy and then claim to be in the right with God. We we believe here at Cross and Crown, we believe in Sola Scriptura. We love Sola Scriptura, but we also believe in Tota. Scriptura. Scripture alone and all of Scripture alone. That's our authority. That's the anchor of all things. We are Christians. Therefore, we love the Bible and we love all of the Bible, even the hard pills to swallow. So in terms of this covenant, covenant responsibility quickly turns into covenant pride the moment that we downplay our sin, the moment that we push aside the hard parts of the Bible, and the moment we begin to elevate ourselves and our own superiority. Look at us Christians, well-behaved. We don't act like that. Ha! Ever said that? You may not act like that. Remember the, uh, the, uh, the, the sinner and the Pharisee who were praying, I thank God I'm not like this sinner. That's true. He wasn't like that sinner. But what was he like? An arrogant jerk. (laughs) Who went home justified? The one who said, have mercy on me, a sinner. So it goes from covenant responsibility to covenant irresponsibility and fast. Applying this today would be akin to, you know, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, let me show you my church membership paper or let me let me show you my baptism certificate you might even appeal to scripture to assert yourself and but conveniently leave out the parts of the scripture which condemn you right rather than appeal to the gifts here's a novel idea maybe we should appeal to the giver of the gifts paul says in 1 corinthians 15:10 but by the grace of god that i am what i am by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's the grace of God that makes you, you. It's, it's his wisdom. It's his righteousness. It's his justice, his love, his mercy. All of that in the face of the cross and the empty tomb that makes you what you are today. That being a forgiven, totally justified in Christ sinner. That's where you appeal. Don't appeal to anything else. Appeal to the grace of God alone. Presumption of the covenant then Begets forgetfulness. You start to forget the things in the Bible that actually uh, are terrifying to you. Like the whole thing about God knowing all your secrets. (laughs) You forget those things. And once you forget the purpose of the covenant, you begin to break the covenant. And now you've become a sinner. So we're told in chapter 1 that the just shall live by faith. The declared to be right just one shall live by his faithfulness we live faithful lives because christ was faithful that's that's the logic we don't live on the independent words of the state or the church like the pope think pope or any you know ecclesiastical tyrant we don't live by the independent word of the family either we don't live by any of those things which means we should resist those things Remember what Paul says in Acts, in him do we live and move and have our being. We don't have our being and live in terms of humanism or statism or the abuse of a family. Think hyper, hyper-patriarchalism and such. Or, or or we don't live in terms of ecclesiological megalomania, all oh, the pastor said. We don't live in terms of those words. They're independent words outside of Scripture. We don't live in those things. If you want to be a faithful covenant member, you must know where life is to be found. And you all know where life is to be found, in Christ. Last night on our way back from visiting family uh, Mary, <laughs> she she said to me, you had no idea at the time, but it was brilliant. She said, when your theology is bad, nothing is consistent. Do you remember saying that? And, uh, and I thought, oh, that's gold. And it was in a certain context, which isn't for now, but I immediately wrote it down. And I thought this is profound giving our past, given our passage. Paul brings this sharp criticism here in order to deal with, remember, the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles now in this, this church in Rome. And the one thing he makes certain here, aside from the doctrine of total depravity, you know, the whole open grave visual, all are sinners, no one seeks for God, you know, those things. Aside from that, Paul emphasizes and says that it's bad theology that will always breed inconsistency each and every time. We have a responsibility as covenant members to take the fullness of the amazing theology that we have in the Bible and use it in every area of life. We've been entrusted, the church has been entrusted to carry forth To carry forth these truths into the world, and to fail to do so is a failure of responsibility. Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God, and they let it slip off the back of the truck and tumble into the weeds. Instead of continuing the mission, they had begun to develop a bad theology, and this bad theology meant that they became inconsistent, and that's Paul's point here. We must not do this. We must not do it. But in order to be consistent, we simply must take seriously the problem of sin. And not just the heavy-handed sins, by the way, friends. The ones that we gasp at in a fit of incredulity because we would never do such a thing. I can't believe that person would do that. No, we must also put to death the murmuring. Right? The passive-aggressive bitterness the jealousy, you know, the respectable sins that we love to tolerate. Paul here insists that covenant responsibility will always, in every way, be undermined by unrepentant sins that lurk behind unsuspecting hearts. When you give sin an inch in your life, you are on your way to covenant irresponsibility instead of covenant responsibility. If we want justice to prevail on earth as it is in heaven, if we want the kingdom of God to be stuffed and pressed into every nook and cranny of this world, then we must, hear me out, we must hurry ourselves to the front of the repentance line. Doesn't get any more cleaner than that. That's it. Right there. You want to be first? Go. Hurry to the repentance line. You can't jump up and down on the justice of God out there without jumping up and down on the justice of God inside your own heart and your own mind. You can't take your favorite parts of the Bible and then ignore the parts that you don't like. That's a surefire way to invoke covenant sanctions of God. You've broken it. Covenant people who have been brought to the grace of God by Jesus Christ are people who push the antithesis in their own lives before they start pushing the antithesis in the lives of others. They love repentance, not personal vengeance. They simply love and cherish the grace of God enough to know that there is no possible way on this earth that they could bring their filthy rags of self-righteousness to the throne and expect God to be impressed. No possible way. No, instead, they cast themselves on the mercy of God and know that's right where they're supposed to be. When we do this, we are taking the first step in covenant responsibility, the responsibility to carry forth the word of God into the world for the transformation of the nations. And it starts with you, but guess what? It doesn't end with you. It starts with you, but it doesn't end with you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you... We thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul. What a tremendous mind you had given him to sort out the complexities of interpersonal relationships in the church in Rome. And, and the way he did it is, is brilliant. It's astounding. And there's so much to learn about covenant responsibility, so much to learn from Israel's failure, yet Christ's uh, success and as we, as your people, are called into this covenant, we ask and pray that we would be first in line in the repentance line. And we want dearly and deeply to be people who, who love you, who bow before you, who are obedient to you, who are walking forward into the world with much gratitude and much joy. So we pray for your help. We pray for your Spirit's help. Give us what we need. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.